Central Intelligence Cinema presents Road to Reckoning. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Welcome to episode 53 of Central Intelligence Cinema. Today is a very special episode as we're making a surprise pit stop on the road to reckoning by bringing in Marty McKillop from Thunderball's radio show to talk about Mission Impossible Fallout, Dead Reckoning, and even a little bit about Bond. Truly a discussion you won't want to miss. But without further ado, take it away, Pierce. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. <laughs> Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Solo. Bond. James Bond. Natasha Romanoff. Ethan Hunt. Looks like Elsa Faust. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Do you expect me to talk? I'm in the middle. This moron is giving me everything. Yeah, baby! Special agent, you're not having a very special day, are you? But remember, nothing ever goes according to plan. Tom, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. The state will self-destruct in five seconds. Recording from a previously undisclosed, undisclosed location, it's a Central Intelligence Cinema podcast. I'm Jason Greenberg, and with me, as always... Ben Esslinger. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. And welcome back to the CIC. You know, for being special agents, we really are actually, in fact, having a rather special day. Just when we thought we were at the end of the road to reckoning, <laughs> much to... We were so, <laughs> so, so close. We were so close. Much to... Well, I think... He may think that much. it's much to his dismay that we are still on the road to reckoning. <laughs> I think Jason will be pleasantly pleased with what we've got on the docket today. We've got one last thunderous stop, if I may say so. Ooh. Yes, indeed. Because today, we are bringing in a guest. We have a guest. We, a guest? We too. Can you believe it? It's been, oh my God, 2020 was the last time we had a guest. That is a long <laughs> That was three years ago. Have we been ago. doing the podcast that long? We really have. I know. Wow. It's, I know. I know. It's kind of crazy. But uh, People yeah. can go to school and graduate from college in that period of time, can't they? Well, I mean, I, I feel like I'm just about ready to graduate from the school of <laughs> hashtag silly spy shit. So, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a glorious day. We have a great guest. He's here to talk about Mission Impossible Fallout because he's a big fan of that. We're going to talk about expectations for the new movie and perhaps, perhaps a little chat about how this reflects on the James Bond franchise. And who better to talk with about something like this than someone who has an appreciation for both? A man with real thunderballs, if you will. And uh, we're, we're bringing him in, we're choppering him in all the way from Thunderballs HQ. Marty McKillop. Marty, are you there? Are you coming in? I think I see you. I'm here. Yeah, I'm doing really good. Yeah, I just I just kind of just start by saying that it's really great to be finally at the undisclosed location with you two fine gentlemen after huh? listening to you and your fine podcast for so long. I am really honored to have you here. I'm I'm just really grateful that that you agreed to come on the show. Hopefully. The uh, the chopper handlers weren't too rough with you when you when you came in. I know well, we generally the hood was a, the hood was a little much, but we thought you would appreciate the irony. 
The hood's fine. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I had completely <laughs> underestimated your absolute dedication to security when you bring in guests. Because, I mean, a few weeks ago, I was handed an envelope by a courier that I hadn't seen before. Um, and it can only, only be opened by retinal scan. Um, <laughs> this is always fun, isn't it? It's always yes, fun. Well, you so, know, our, then, our, our Q branch is very uh, thorough. I mean, it's very thorough, yeah. And the document revealed details for the time and the coordinates to be collected by your very, very professional team. And they did so about eight hours ago. And it was requested that um, I be blindfolded, hooded in this case, you know. So mm -hmm. I had to be hooded. And I was given the option of a powerful tranquilizer, which obviously <laughs> I took. Why wouldn't you? If you're offered drugs, well, yeah. you say yes every time. Absolutely. Especially on this podcast, it helps to be a little, you know, maybe a couple bags in. <laughs> so if I'm a bit, um, if I slur my words, then I'm going to blame it on the drugs, okay? That's, that's perfectly, perfectly <laughs> fine. Okay. Just out of curiosity, was it a blonde Nordic type man who put the uh, hood on you and offered you the uh, sedative? It was. It was actually, yeah. He was, he was uh, built like a, a brick shit house, is what they, they, they would say. <laughs> That's what I figured. I mean. Um, yeah, he's huge, huge. But, but yeah, so when a guy like that asks you to, can you please put the hood on, please? You go, well, okay, fine. He's very polite. He's very polite, yeah. We, you know, we, we do try to hire polite thugs and underlings. I mean, you know. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, well, I'm glad. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, no, I just appreciate the amount of effort that you put into it. But um, to be actually here at the undisclosed location is a bit of a thrill. And I can see in the other side of the room is a lovely James Bond pinball machine. It's <laughs> gleaming. Can I touch it, Ben? Oh, absolutely. You may. <laughs> maybe, maybe later. Just don't set your drink on it. That's all I ask. <laughs> but uh, yeah, super happy to have you here. Uh, for the uninitiated, I don't know how they wouldn't know, but Marty, can you quick tell us about yourself, where people may know you from on the internet? Well, they might not know me per se. They might know that we set up a website, first of all, called thunderballs.org. And it's basically to catalog the incredible amount of stills that have been created for the James Bond series since the early 60s. So um, it was never a plan to create an archive of stills. It just happened that way. And I think if I'd known how long it was going to take, I would have just gone, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it. And even now, when I, look, when I look back on it, now that I've kind of drawn a line under it, I kind of, I don't understand how I was able to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how but, fast um, it has become. I couldn't do it again. If somebody said, can you just do that again, Marty? I'd be like, no. No, I can't. <laughs> so, so does that mean there's not a pending one for Mission Impossible then? Well, I have been taunting the James Bond fans on social media with that. <laughs> <laughs> I recently changed the uh, Thunderbolt Twitter handle to the Mission Impossible Archive. And then I posted a picture of Rebecca Ferguson in the same style that I normally post the, the Bond pictures. And I was really annoyed because nobody came back to me and went, what's going on here? I was just like, they just went, okay, yeah, he's, he's changed tack. Like, yeah, was, I think there was like one guy I think I saw that was a little moderately cheesed off, but I think I think most people knew that you were kind of messing with him. So, yeah. Um, well, if, you, if you had posted a picture of Haley Atwell, then Ben would have at least sent me to it so I could look at it. <laughs> That's going to come. Um, there's going to be lots of uh, trolling of James Bond fans in the in the coming weeks, which sounds terrible, doesn't it? Coming from a guy that started a James Bond Twitter account, social media, and website, radio show. But now I'm just like... Not at all. I'm just like turning around and punching Eon in the face on social media. <laughs> just, but, you know, it's not undeserved. 
So there you go. I feel like maybe it's just tough love. <laughs> it is really, yeah. I mean, this is what I do. You give them a boot in the balls, and then every now and again you post a picture of Cubby and say, you know, Cubby, we love Cubby, don't we? <laughs> we want it all to work out, really, but um, we're not holding our breaths. Exactly. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> and uh, also, people might know you from uh, Thunderball's radio show, too, which I absolutely loved, just because it, it's uh, so different from all the other Bond podcasts, because it's not a podcast. It's essentially an actual radio show where you feature more music and just little bits in between the music instead of an actual podcast, per se, which which I found extremely refreshing. I know you're teetering on maybe not doing it ever again, but <laughs> I hope you do. I hope you do bring it back. Yeah, I mean, I think if, um, yeah, I've had some thoughts about it. Do you know Stu Rolls, the guy that does the the impressions of Brozza online? Yes. Stuart yeah. Rolls. Now, I've been talking with Stuart Rolls about doing a different style of Thunderballs radio show for the second season called Thunderballs Unhinged. And it's basically <laughs> going to be basically just us talking crap about Eon. And uh, <laughs> it's going to be the, it's going to be like, um, in the in Mission Impossible films of the anti IMF, this is going to be like the anti Thunderballs, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we absolutely try and destroy everything that we've created thus far. I'm, I'm all for that. I, I would yeah. listen to every episode of that. <laughs> That's the kind of idea. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. We did, we just wanted to just do a kind of magazine style show where you could have a bit of this and a bit of that and people suggesting records and bits of music and get them on answering really hard James Bond questions in a quiz that I couldn't do myself. Right. I just sort of sit back and just enjoy it myself, you know. But yeah, it's it's good fun. But as you know, producing a podcast is much harder work than uh, people ever seem to think it is, you know. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Takes time, dedication, um, pouring over notes. You know, they just assume you just walk up, don't they? Walk up to the microphone and just start talking. Well, maybe Jason does because he's not. Well, that's sadly basically what I do. So um, <laughs> I can't really, I can't really commiserate with you guys. But I know that the, I know Ben's pain. So I'll try not to uh, just you know brush that one off and move on. <laughs> this is it. This is you're a very skilled gentleman, Jason. I'll give you that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, I definitely hope you do uh, go down that road because I would find that very entertaining. I think that's got a lot of promise, especially if uh, we hear a lot of interstitials with Braza. <laughs> Getting you from one one thing to another. We also considered doing it as a kind of like um, naked cooking, right? Me and Stu were going to go naked cooking, right, with thund with Team Thunderballs, and we were going to have guests on and pretend that they were all naked as well while we were doing the, the naked cooking. So we're going to have like um, one week we'd be cooking um, quiche. I mean, <laughs> so it'd all be stuff to do with um, stuff that's eaten in the James Bond films, and we're trying to make it right live on the podcast. What do you think? But it's all just audio, but you're all allegedly naked. So. <laughs> well, that's what. Well, no, we're going to do it for real, man. <laughs> yeah. well okay then <laughs> all right this is why this is why i'm saying them I mean, if you're going to call your the second season of your show thunderballs unhinged then it kind of has to be unhinged doesn't it indeed indeed this <laughs> <laughs> isn't going oh my goodness <laughs> well i'm just thinking if you're making a quiche keep certain parts of your body away from the egg beaters that's yes. all <laughs> That's the golden rule, isn't it? Just going to have to tuck that shit back here and there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had some very um, distressing news from, from yourself earlier in the week, Ben. Mm. There was a message on my WhatsApp from you, and um, you, there was a moment of distress. Um, basically, the news was from you, and I I feel for both of you gentlemen in this situation. Yes, well, right? you know. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. The, um, the terrible news 
that the, you actually received a four-star review for your podcast rather than just a the five-star, which obviously you deserve. I, Have you got over that since? I mean, I, you were on a precipice with when when you, when you got that news there. So have you managed to pick yourself up and uh, dust yourself off? You know, I, I have. I I did spend about 48 hours in the fetal position uh, mm. on the floor in the cellar, but I have since recovered. Um, <laughs> my it was shocking news. Was, it was brutal. It was a yeah. gut punch, wasn't it? Yeah. I was, you know, <laughs> my wife found found me here down in the undisclosed location with a noose around my neck and and she tried to talk some sense into me and i <laughs> which we all know is a very difficult thing to do even on a good day that's right so <laughs> thankfully the uh, the voice of the cic uh he's talked around yes. can, can that. i just say that i was happy that somebody left a comment at all <laughs> <laughs> At Indeed. this point, if they if they left a one star review and said you guys suck, at least you're like thanks for listening. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now we have to hunt you down. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I then went on to point out to Ben that broadcasting from prison would be a bit of a challenge, mm-hmm. and he he threw he threw a bunch of Shawshank Redemption things about hiding his microphone to me. <laughs> yes, behind a uh, poster of Rita Hayworth and <laughs> Rita, yeah, and eventually Raquel Welch because we know this podcast is going to go on forever. That's right. Just like prison time, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. There's probably some good prison podcasts out there, actually, isn't there? Anyway, so that's a side note, anyway. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I'm glad you've, um, I'm glad you've got over that then, Ben, because, yeah. you know, it, it's it's hard, you know, you put all the, the dedication in and you think, where are we dropping this? The fact that you don't know where the star has been dropped, that's, that's the thing. It's going to play in your mind, that, isn't it? A little bit. It would play on my mind. Yeah, a yeah. little bit. I mean, especially when you're the producer of the show and everything, you're thinking, <laughs> I wonder if that, I wonder if that's my fault. Yeah. I don't know. Is it my fault? The voice of the CIC, is it my fault? Yeah. No, it's yeah. not, Ben. <laughs> Move on with your life. You see, now, now I'm going to be thinking about it again. <laughs> no, you know what? Much like uh, Tom Cruise breaking his ankle on a stunt, he recovered and I will recover and <laughs> I'll just keep it moving. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's all good. I've already dealt with that guy anyway, so he won't be bad. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> well, we, we won't hear anything more from him it's fine. It's, it's, we'll draw a line under it it's fine all righty then well <laughs> talking about unhinged the talking podcast about- has become unhinged <laughs> that's right indeed indeed i should let the uh, listeners know that you and i marty we've been we've been chatting quite a bit through a secure undisclosed line about bond but also mission impossible fallout because we're both big fans of it mm. but before we get into sort of our proper discussion about fallout and that sort of thing can you give us your personal rankings of the mission impossible films now this is relatively easy right relatively easy and it's, okay. it, it sounds really simple on paper it's basically six five four three two one right but my caveat is that when I first um, saw Mission Impossible, I was working in a cinema at the time, and it was my, my first cinema job I'd ever done. It was like I was at art school, and it was the summer in between my third and fourth year, and uh, I had the chance to work at a cinema. And it was great, getting paid to watch films for peanuts, literally, pe- literally peanuts, you know. Um, <laughs> so um, watching Mission Impossible on repeat, it was just, I really enjoyed it. And I was a big fan of Brian De Palma going in, so I liked the feel of it you know i like this sort of noirish element to it and just the way that certain sequences were developed and played out um so to say that's my 
least favorite of the films is harsh because and i don't do i'm not a fan of ranking things necessarily i can't rank things i find it difficult to rank things but i think if it had to be it probably would be that order because fallout is my favorite of the bunch just because it's kind of uh, they've just developed it to such a point that it feels fully formed and fully realized and they really know what they're doing you know and they've got the, the crack team production team behind them as well and McHugh and Tom Cruise have formed a sort of a mind meld haven't they as well and just become one yeah. in Mission Impossible and they sort of just finish each other's sentences now so yeah it's just that's why it's so good you know yeah and honestly I feel like at this point I saw a really great tweet about the relationship between Cruise and McHugh and how like he imagined the the person who tweeted this said he imagined that when they're in production that they sleep in bunk beds and that and that cruise is on the bottom bunk and he's like hey McHugh we should do this and McHugh's like sure Tom sure and then he falls asleep yeah I mean Rogue Nation has a close second but um, I really like both Rebecca Ferguson gets a bit more to do in, in uh, Rogue Nation yeah, and that's actually why my ranking is currently the way it is, although it keeps changing. And you're kind of right about about ranking films in a series like this, just because it, it just constantly changes with time. And for me, it, you know, right now, just right now, I like Rogue Nation is at the top for me just because it's a little bit more playful than Fallout. I just kind of like that tone. I feel like that's that's my favorite tone for these movies where Fallout gets a little bit more serious and... But I could also understand why Bond fans would like Fallout so much because it does feel the most Bondian in tone. But actually, I, yeah, Rogue Nation just edges it for me. And then Fallout and Ghost Protocol kind of duke it out. For the longest time, Ghost Protocol was my favorite. And then it, and then it just sort of dwindles down from there. Although I will say three is lower in my rankings than most people's. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of three. So I'd actually put two and one maybe above three. I don't know. Yeah. Two's pretty... <laughs> It's pretty woo as fuck. So. Woo as fuck. Indeed it is. I, I mean, I think the action sequences in the second film definitely surpass stuff that's going on in the third one. I would say to the most for the most part. I like the fact that it's more practical than sort of uh, trickery. Yeah, and I do feel like too. Um, and and we talked about this in our review. I feel like three feels a little TV to me just because everything is the shots are a little closer than i would prefer for cinema and i think jj abrams coming straight out of tv to to do that one i think his lens his his viewpoint was was geared a little bit it was still slightly in the tv world he hadn't fully transitioned or graduated into film yet so and then just from a purely aesthetic sense i feel like they crushed the colors so hard on on three that bothered me for some reason anyway jason would you like to uh, weigh in <laughs> yeah i've just been you know uh, reshuffling all the numbers as we go through oh yeah that's a good point i'm gonna go ahead and move that one up no 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 you know you're right that this one should stay right where it belongs um <laughs> I, I think basically using the number scheme it would probably be uh, six five four one three two yeah because i l like you marty i i, I appreciate the the brian de palmanus of one it's probably my second favorite brian de palma movie if we were listing brian de palma movies but two and three just sort of felt like i, I mean i like three significantly more than two two just felt like a john woo movie that had tom cruise in it it didn't really feel like it was to me connected to any of the other ones in the series but yeah i i really like fallout 
even though I think it's a half hour too long, <laughs> I, I just, like you said, I think it feels uh, fully formed as a Mission Impossible picture. Everybody's on the same page. You're, you're getting what you came in there for, but it doesn't feel, the, like the stunts still feel as shoehorned. Everything kind of feels like it has a better flow to it. And of course, you know, with one, not, none of the films that came after one are like one at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's very I much mean, an anomaly. It's just yeah. because, because it's De Palma. And so, you know, you've got right. all those Dutch angles and everything's so dramatic with the lighting. And Yeah, I think every one of these films has been the director's version of a movie. And I think that's why the Macquarie ones work so well, because he's just basically directing what Tom wants directed. And so there's a consistency between the principal actor and the writer and the director all together. As opposed to, you know, Brian De Palma making a Brian De Palma movie and, and Wu making a Wu movie, which, yes, was Wu as fuck, but Wu as fuck was still at the end of the day. You could have put Jet Li in there. It would have been the same movie. And, you know, Brad Bird, don't get me wrong. I love Brad and I love JJ, but <laughs> if they made an animated Mission Impossible movie, that would have been Brad Bird's mission brief right there. That's that's fair. That's fair. I always have to give brad bird the biggest amount of credit for changing the entire franchise just because i feel mm -hmm. like and maybe maybe it was on tom you know figuring this out but ghost protocol is where the nature of ethan hunt changes it's where he suddenly has that weary hero vibe to him kind of like indiana jones where you have to climb outside the burst khalifa i have to do what you know, suddenly he's taking stock of these ridiculous things that he has to do and be like, oh, okay. You know, as opposed to in one through three, he's just like, I'm going to do it. You know, <laughs> he's right. just, there's no, there's no second guessing. He's just, he's right into it. Whereas you hit four and that's right about when we get some of those moments where he's on the ground, he has to fight some guy and he puts his hand up, like, give me a second. I, I I need a second before I fight you, giant blonde Nordic man. You know, <laughs> those sort of moments. Right. I feel like Ghost Protocol really helped fully form Ethan Hunt as a character. Granted, all the other wheels fall into place in Rogue Nation when McHugh hits. And that's also when we get the, the perfect casting and everything else. But I can't give Brad Bird enough credit. I got to think that's who influenced that different kind of character element to, to Ethan Hunt. Interesting that they went for the standalone approach, different directors, standalone style Mission Impossible films, but then started to make it into a bigger story. I mean, from Rogue Nation, they've developed it as a bigger story. And, and I've had this sort of, we've talked about this as well, about how it feels like Tom Cruise is deliberately trying to poke at Eon, uh, especially with the amount of references to the Bond series. And it's almost as if he's gone, ah, you're trying to do a, a sort of connected story kind of line of films. You're trying to connect the dots a bit with your Bond films. Wait a minute, I'll show you how it's done. And I'll do the stunts better as well. So <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like they made a conscious decision to start making it sequential, haven't they? And now he's going to show them how it's done, I suspect. I can't argue that at all. I mean, I, I it kind of feels like yeah, it kind of feels well, like, oh, you want to connect all these together? Watch this. And because it feels so much more seamless in Fallout when they bring back Julia and they... Yeah, well, when and, they bring back um, Solomon Lane right at the start and you think, brilliant, fantastic. But yeah. um, so I, I hate even talking about this because I know how much of a fan of Spectre you are. You know what I mean? So I don't want to hurt <laughs> your feelings then, you know? Because when you hold something up so high... <laughs> it's a real boot in the balls when someone comes along and just starts pissing on your parade. You know what I mean? And it's like, and I'm sorry. 
You know, yeah. you know, Marty, I really appreciate you. Uh, I really appreciate you pointing that out to me. And you're absolutely right. I am a huge fan of Spectre. And uh, despite some people who I know that are less of fans about Spectre, um, I feel like my opinion is valid and, and it has some merit. And I think you've I think you've provided a necessary amount of supporting uh, evidence to that point. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And the car chase. um I mean, maybe we can get down to proving it once and for all, but um, it's not as good, the car chase in Spectre, as the one in Fallout. No, no, Rogue Nation, we're going to go 2015 no. films together, aren't we? Let's put them together. Yes, yeah. None of the car chases in a Bond movie are as good as the ones in Fallout. Oof. Period. I'm, not, I'm glad this is a Mission Impossible style <laughs> podcast, not a James Bond one. <laughs> we're willing to poke the stick at anything. I'm, I'm, I'm off the leash now, Ben. It's right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, granted that really the the really high intensity car chase from Goldfinger uh, in in the Swiss Alps with the Mustang. I mean, that was riveting. But uh, I feel like uh, if you're gonna do, if you're gonna just go drive a teeny tiny car through the streets of Rome, which Already, just having seen, what, five seconds of that in a trailer, it's probably better than any Bond car chase that I've seen. So um, I'm a aficionado of car chases, not spy movies. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, this is it. They're not just, um, they're not just looking at Bond as a, as, a, as a sort of platform to how can we push this on a little bit further. They are looking at the bigger picture and thinking, right, Bullet, French Connection, and all these sort of these classic references and trying to kind of up the ante I like the fact that they are trying to make an effort to up the ante and raise the bar of action cinema. It's commendable because each time that happens, when you see these type of films, you think, how can they ever top these things? And I'm sort of just thinking back to films that you distinctly remember doing that, going way back years ago, Terminator 2, I remember seeing that and thinking, this is just unbelievable. And the freeway chase on that and how it was all practical, it sort of feels like they've sort of come back to that again. I hate all the CGI stuff that was in the Fast and the Furious films, all that CGI stuff. It just looks horrible when you see it on, on screen sometimes, I think. Well, it's, it's just so glazingly obvious when it when you do see it. Yeah, I think with Mission Impossible's kind of found that secret sauce between practical and CGI where you need to enhance the moment but not actually produce the entire moment together. And there's a lot of studios and there's a lot of special effects houses that I still don't think know how to really work those two together. You know, everything should be like Jurassic Park where you're watching it, you don't know what's what, as opposed yeah. to be able to going, well, that's clearly Tom on a bike, but those are not this, that, or the other. Or, wow, is that a really bad digital face on the guy that looks like Daniel Craig? Uh, yeah, that sure is. Great stunt, though, because, I mean, it, it, the bad <laughs> CGI takes you right out of the whole thing you can't enjoy it and all i yep. every time i see that motorcycle jump all i just keep thinking is well tom cruise would have actually done it so you know there's this definitely is... that element in his movies you're like if it looks like tom there's a 92 percent chance that was tom right this is the motorcycle jump from no time to die you're talking about yes the one that they or no, 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 no. You're thinking of the rooftop in Skyfall, huh? The rooftop, yes, the rooftop in Skyfall. Okay. You're right, my bad. I can't help but think they're not showing us everything in the Mission Impossible trailers. The new ones I'm talking about for Dead Reckoning. Yeah. They're showing us some stuff, which is good, but not everything. Whereas No Time to Die, they just, they blew <laughs> their big stunt in the trailer. And you think, why did you do that? Why? Well, to be fair, yeah. they had like eight years they had to keep putting trailers up for the movie came out. So they ran everything else. There is that, but there's an element too of, there is a difference between Bond and, and I'll stick up for Bond just a little bit right now. Is There is a difference between Bond and Mission Impossible. I can't believe you're having to do that, Ben. 
There is a difference between what a Bond movie is and what a Mission Impossible movie is. And so, you know, you're not going to have that many giant set pieces in a Bond movie as compared to a Mission movie. And and Jason's right also in the, in the sense that movie was put on ice for so long that, you know, by the time the movie came out, they, ex- they had exhausted all the greatest hits of that movie and everybody had seen everything. So it didn't feel very fresh when you finally went and saw it because they showed you everything. Yeah. Although it's also kind of on Ian, the fact that they even chose to show all that stuff. Because, I mean, I suppose now I'm going to prove myself wrong because Dead Reckoning was also delayed during actual production because of the pandemic and what have you. And yet they didn't show everything. And I'm, I'm, I'm still convinced they haven't shown everything. And it's really easy for Mission Impossible to just show all this stuff because that's their whole movie. The whole movie is just a sequence of set pieces with a story wrapped around it. Granted, as time has gone on, now it's they've gotten better at creating the story first and then inserting all the set pieces that they've always wanted to do. But it's still there's still some question as to what drives what. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd read that Chris Macquarie he basically locks down the locations before he starts even writing the script. He just sort of he finds the locations first and then writes the script around it. Um, yeah, so that he doesn't have to compromise the scene or the location if they have to change things although they have to change things with um mission impossible fallout didn't they because i think they weren't intending on shooting in new zealand and that was a switcheroo they had to do at the last minute i think i think they were supposed to be a bit further north on the planet um but they couldn't get the permissions or whatever so but yeah it still works yeah well, and I brought up in the last podcast too, just with Dead Reckoning, initially they were supposed to shoot in this airport in, I want to say Germany, and but by the time they got around to wanting to shoot there, they lost the location because the airport was set to go live because it, it finally got built fully. And so they had to switch gears and then Abu Dhabi offered up their airport. So suddenly we get all these amazing shots and, you know, we'll probably get quite the sequence in the desert now. And that's all a whole different rewrite. It's a whole different, you know, they completely switch gears. And you know that Macquarie sits down in the in his hotel room and starts rewriting everything, you know, not just trying to shoehorn what they already had. Well, I mean, it's the benefit, isn't it, having a, a director who can think on his feet and rewrite scenes on the spot, you know? I think yeah. with uh, other types of productions, they just don't have the, the luxury of that. So they have to just cobble it together as best they can and hope you don't notice that they've done yeah. that. But half the time you do. So Yeah. So just out of curiosity, Marty, what would you say is your favorite moment in Fallout? I have an absolute kind of, uh, it's a shopping list of moments. I can't do a favorite Fallout, um, fallout moment. I wrote down a few though, because I knew that you were going to ask me this, right? So I prepared myself here, right? This is what I've done. I've written, um, this is not in film order, by the way, as well. I love the moment of Cam after the Paris chase when the team are in the underground sort of waterway. Do you know the bit I mean? It's in the trailer, I think. It's just like a shot after Tom's rolled down through the kind of the little hole in the road. Right, yeah. And then there's like a shot of Benji driving the boat through and it's like the, the music's going... Ding, 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 ding. It's like sort of a slowed down version of the theme and Benji's looking really cool and it's just a little quiet moment after that crazy chase. I love that moment, love it. They obviously loved it as well because they stuck it in the trailer. Uh, I love all the lighting at the Palais sequence. I think that's fantastic what they did there. And to make that an actual location in Paris, use it an actual location in Paris as well, rather than just doing it on a soundstage is another little cherry on the top. Love that. I love the scene when Ilsa is following Ethan through the park 
when she's kind of just walking sort of alongside him and he, he, they're just sort of, yeah. he kind of keeps disappearing and then she finds him again and they're just sort of tracking each other. It's just nice. Yeah. I just like little moments like that. When they finally see each other and the camera, you know, truck sideways as as they go from being out in the middle of the sun to going in between those those trees and into the shadows to talk, like it's such a yeah. great visual thing that that also you know sort of alludes to oh we're now we're now talking in private we're now you know just but the very nature of going from the light into the into the shadows or and what have you, but it's. Yeah, but it's funny. Yeah, it's funny to pick out when I'm thinking about it. Moments that I've picked out that stand out for me. Obviously, the action sequences are great. I love Tom in a helicopter calling Cavill's John Lark a prick. I like that bit as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, prick. <laughs> <laughs> That's a scene when I watched that with my wife for the first time. She laughed out loud at that bit. She loved that. Bit. But it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. There's, I mean, there's too many scenes and moments to mention without it coming across like I'm. A fucking complete Mission Impossible fanboy, you know? Like, yeah, and that bit where Tom says this, and that bit this, and then when Cavill cocks his arms like a shotgun, I love that bit. It's just like you could just go on and on and on. It's ridiculous. It's um, yeah. there's so much to just love in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Going back real quick, the very first thing that you mentioned about when they're in the boat and they're under in that little underground uh, waterway or what have you, I just love that moment where Tom finally gets up after falling into the boat. And his hair's all screwed up, and he's just got that like just he's just looks kind of out of it, just like oh fuck, okay. I just like how disheveled he looked in that moment. It was, it was a nice little because yeah. normally, you know, that's another thing. Again, I feel like, and I don't know if this is one of those things where you just can't do that with Bond, but I like the fact that they have allowed Ethan Hunt to occasionally look like that look out of it disheveled like just kind of messed up you know granted there's there's i guess there's moments in bond you know like i think about in moonraker <laughs> obviously when he gets out yeah. of the the spinny thing but in a way it's almost good that you have both bond and mission out there because you do get to have both you you can have one person who's doing that and then you have the the guy who adjusts his cuffs or or straightens his tie after after a big thing and then you move on and and they're both charming in their own sort of way I think for me, I love, love, love the motorcycle chase in Paris. Mission just does motorcycles well, just in general, just because Tom's such a big motorcycle guy. And, you know, you were the one, Marty, who actually sent me the video on how they did that stunt where, yeah. where he's looking behind him to check for people behind him. And then when he looks forward, he runs right into that car. And, so it's like and a rig and he's on a wire. And yeah, it, it's still, when you watch the film, it still looks seamless. I don't Yeah. You sort of. Yeah, you can think, really? Is he? Yeah, and it looks so good. And it's, you know, again, it's because they didn't try and throw his body via CGI. They literally put him on a wire so it looks, so he's literally flying over the, the car and match cut those two different angles and way better than anything where, you know, you're you're CGIing it. So, I mean, how how important would you say um, the inclusion of, of pedestrians and other vehicles in that chase sequence kind of, make that exciting what what i mean let me rephrase that um, so how important a component is having other vehicles and pedestrians in that scene in those chase chase scenes 
I, I as would compared to, to say the way that they did Inspector, of course. Of course, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, so first I of all, it's during <laughs> the day when you would expect to see cars and pedestrians, not at two o'clock in the morning where you might think, yeah, maybe there's a few people less than that out there. But look, I'm know, just saying, it's, it's, it's Rome. It's Rome. <laughs> It's Rome. <laughs> it's, you know, you know, Marty, it's, it's actually, it's super important because like you were pointing out earlier, you know, the evolution of the car chase and film has made leaps and bounds just about every 10, 15 years. And, you know, you would get a lot in the older car chases, you'd clear out the streets. The only other cars you'd have in there were operated by stunt drivers. Very seldom did you get a decent car chase, I think, that looked like it wasn't planned to be a car chase. I think until you got to Ronin, I think that was kind of like the first car chase I felt like was actually happening in the real world while it was going on. And I think the filmmakers have kind of uh, built off of that. But to slightly give Ben some credit, the scene inspector didn't have the same level of stakes because there wasn't anything else out there. You can't hit somebody, you can't break anything. But I think that was the point of the movie or in the movie of just having the two cards is that it was Bond versus Drax the Destroyer. And that's all you were going to (laughs) get. But I think it's very important to have those obstacles and elements to to sell that it's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, the tension would have been broken if Tom, if Ethan suddenly made a phone call halfway uh, right. through the chase sequence. Um, a leisurely yeah. phone call at that, you know. Hello? <laughs> Money Penny? Yes? Oh, hi. Um, oh. Sorry, I've just been chased by some uh, some goons. Um, you got a minute. <laughs> you came and, for a um, coffee. Would you like a coffee? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll be with you in a few moments. I'm just being chased by some goons just now. Fortunately, there's no traffic or any people out here, so I can have a leisurely conversation with you while I'm being chased. I'm not buying the three in the morning thing, by the way. Just going back to that, Inspector, right? I always thought it was kind of early evening, maybe about 9.30, right? This is an argument that has been perpetuated by James Bond, disgruntled James Bond fans online, and they've they've made up this claim that it's somehow it's at three in the morning. Maybe they've, yeah, maybe Pervis and Wade have said that. Maybe they've said that as a sort of... Uh, well, I'm going to guess it was shot at three in the morning. <laughs> yeah, it looks like it was, yeah. Um, yeah, nobody on the streets. Nobody on the streets. <laughs> Not one single person, apart from one guy. One guy at three in the morning. I don't know what the hell he's doing at three in the morning. What's he doing at three in the morning? Tooting about watching a car. He's watching a car chase. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I digress. <laughs> no, no. All, all, all I know is that. If somebody on this podcast gets to Rome, they need to stand in that exact location from like midnight to four in the morning to see what it's like with a camera. This is how many people I'm seeing. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. If it's me and I'm proved wrong, I will admit it. But uh, until I see until I see true empirical data presented before me, I'm sticking to my guns. Yeah, yeah. Jason, what would your favorite part of Fallout be? Well, I think aside from cocking guns, because everybody loves cocking arm guns. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's, it's iconic. Thing. He should do it. He should do it at every role he's in from this point on. I think. <laughs> I haven't watched Witcher, but I'm sure there's at least one. Even though he uses a sword, I don't know. But uh, he should. He should. <laughs> even if it's not an action film, it's just an office based film. But he still. He still yeah, does exactly. It. <laughs> he's he's getting ready to write a letter, and he's all. Shh, shh, 
and go. Dear sirs uh, or madam. <laughs> dear, dear sir or madam, your bathrooms are not up to current build quality standards. Anyway, uh, I think my favorite moment, or at least the one that sticks in my mind the most, is the scene where we're introduced to Vanessa. Just that whole scene, Tom coming in, being all suave, her being all femme fatale. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, lovey, 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 and that kind of stuff. But then the exit out is so smooth in comparison to the ass kicking that Ethan just got in the prior scene. Where right. he's just like, Mr. In Control, one at a time, biff, biff, pow, pow. And then Vanessa coming in with the, the butterfly knife and just yes. wham, right into the guy. Like, yeah, I got something too, so take that. And then Ilsa flying in with the Black Widow super high karate kick. And then just, I wish she had tugged at her blazer before she walked off. That would have been perfect. But she's like, flip, bam, crash, and scene. Off she goes. I mean, it was just... Yeah. I think it was the best choreographed bit. I think out of all of the stunty stuff in it, it had the most story attached to it because all of the characters that were involved in that, you all got pieces of who they were as people just from that fight scene. Yeah, and we immediately find out who the White Widow is aside from her nickname. We find out that she's you know Max's daughter. So that immediately right. t- starts tying you all the way back to one. And, right. you know, and, and then all the other major players are in the room as well, like you said. But it doesn't feel shoehorned. I don't think the character, the connection mm-hmm. between Max doesn't necessarily feel like, here you go. Here's a bit of fan service for you. It just makes sense within that universe. Yeah. And the fact that it's it's only over the loudspeaker when she's giving the speech, they're not focused on it. They're actually more focused on Ethan walking in and seeing what's going on. So it's really right. only if you're paying attention that you that you learn that. Like if you're paying close attention to what you're hearing, because otherwise yep. you're just watching this, you know, where he's walking into. You're you're getting a your first glimpse, your sort of establishing of of the scene. And so it's not it's not one of those things where they beat you over the head with it. At the same time, even if you don't hear that part, Vanessa Kirby is playing kind of a, a watered-down version of Max, or maybe I should say a less experienced and worldly version of Max. There's still that very flirtatious attitude that she has with Tom Cruise earlier on in the in the other movie, but she almost feels like the spiritual successor that sort of, I'm like at the top of the, the arms dealer world, but... I have higher ideals of just blowing people up and getting money for it. I want to do this, that, or the other. And so it doesn't feel like it's just a character that was put in there, but you could watch her performance throughout the entire film without knowing she's Max's daughter and start to think, is this Max's daughter? Was this character supposed to be Max and they rewrote it because they couldn't get her again or something like that? So even without the, the very subtle introduction to who the character is, the cues that she's playing throughout the film would almost lead anybody who's watched these movies more than a few times to think that there was some connection that wasn't stated had it not been in there. Unless, of course, you are a, a sort of a, a disgruntled James Bond fan who watches the Mission Impossible films and then pretends not to remember any of the plot um, afterwards, <laughs> and they go, "No, I have no idea what's happening. It's just a load of set pieces just cobbled together with some story, which I can't remember." Okay, just pay we, attention we then. Just pay attention when you're watching the film. <laughs> I'm just saying, yeah. I'll just say I'm just dropping that one in. Yeah, we don't we don't know anybody like that online, do we? We know nobody like that. No, nobody does. That. I don't know anybody. I don't know like anybody like that in the undisclosed location. This- <laughs> 
Indeed. So, obviously, we all know Tom Cruise does his own stunts. It should also be noted Rebecca Ferguson does quite a few of her own as well. I wanted to ask, does the liveliness of the franchise hang on Tom Cruise, the stunts, or both? Like, or is it more about the the nature of the filmmaking itself? You know, is is the whole franchise just going to fall to pieces if Tom leaves? I guess is, is my biggest question, because, you know, you're looking at, you know, we've got a Bond person, well... <laughs> somewhat of a bond person with us who's, who's, uh, is he coming when's, when's he coming <laughs> um, we had to send the, we had to send the tall blonde nordic guy back in the chopper so it could be a yeah. man picked up the wrong guy yeah <laughs> I, may guys, got, I, mean. I may have gotten the wrong guy but i guess my question you know <laughs> bond has lasted now for 60 years and but we've got you know mission impossible that's now been with us since 96 so do you think that the Mission franchise dies with Tom or do you think it, it'll go on? I mean, granted, Tom Cruise is, is 60 years old, but he looks younger than me. So he probably could go on for another 20 years and, and just keep doing it. I'll throw it to Marty first. Do you think that the franchise lives and dies with Tom or do you think if he was just playing producer and and helping a director, do you think it would still go on? Or yeah, I think you'd still need to have the the main sort of protagonist to be able to do his own stunts. I think it still kind of needs that, right? But I think because they've been developing the the ensemble cast a bit more and bringing a bit more focus to some of the sort of the side players and making it more of a team, kind of like what it was, I guess, in the sixties, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom's just sort of turned it into like a sort of James Bond type thing, but he's bringing it back into more of the team kind of idea again, which is good. I think that he will just do less and less stunts and probably just keep doing the films indefinitely. I imagine him doing it when he can't physically do the stunts anymore. I imagine he'll just be a very old Tom Cruise and he'll just be Jim Phelps, essentially. That's what yeah. will happen. And John, John Foyt's character, basically from the first one, yeah, he'll just be absolutely. kind of directing traffic. So yeah. And it would work, I think. But I think there's there's enough going on that I think that they could continue. The recipe is just right, I think. And it's not always about... They just need somebody that can do the stunts, essentially. But I think Tom will probably, and he, he will have done already, there'll be a bunch of actors out there that are getting all the, the various licenses, the, the helicopter license, the bike license, all the stunt stuff. They'll be getting all that together now, thinking... I could do that, potentially. I mean, Cavill was put through his paces, wasn't he, on Fallout, and he was asked to do some bike stuff, bike stunts, and they, he was like, well, I can't do that. I don't have a bike license. And then they were like, oh, that's fine. We'll, we'll, do, we'll figure something else out. And then he was kicking himself and then off doing sort of advanced motorcycle training himself just to think, well, you know, this may come up again. I don't want to have to be the guy that says no. So there'll be a bunch of it. Tom will have inspired a whole raft of people. So think about in 25 years' time when Tom hangs up his, uh, his stunt belt, there'll be somebody else. There'll be a, a new person that will come in. I can, I can imagine it going on and on, really. Yeah. Jason? Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree. You could have a Mission Impossible series without Tom, but you're almost at the point where you have to reboot it like the end of a Bond era and start from scratch again. But people are going to have that expectation if Tom's not in it that whoever's in that spot 
is going to do the exact same stuff that Tom Cruise did, because then you're going to get the Mission Impossible fans. If they start seeing bad CGI and things like that, they're going to be out there crying out uh, like, you know, some of the Bond fans do about the shit that they're unhappy about. Right. Oh, you could tell it wasn't him riding that motorcycle. Blah, 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 blah. Remember when Tom was 104 and he jumped from the moon all the way to Earth and <laughs> saved everything? You know, so I think the biggest problem here is how high a bar is he going to leave it at? Yeah. That yeah. the next guy comes in and goes, are you fucking kidding me? I have to yeah. do what? Yeah. You know, because honestly, I think Tom Cruise is going to die making one of these movies. Yeah. I, or, or be paralyzed from the neck down, and then they'll have to be CGI for obvious reasons. But, I mean, it's just, he keeps taking it to that next level regardless. That maybe what by the time he's done, you can't take it anywhere. You gotta, maybe we think small from the beginning. We gotta go Casino <laughs> Royale, right back to the beginning. Nothing fancy, no real gadgets, no nothing. And then we just build back up again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the scene where he falls from the helicopter and at the end, towards the end of Fallout, where he's hanging on the helicopter and he falls down towards that kind of um, bag, the big ball below. I mean, that's a real fall. You know I mean, it's like. It's, yeah. And they did that multiple times. You've got to let your, you're, you're hanging on and you're, you're letting go of something in midair at speed. There's no getting around the fact that that must have been absolutely kind of not shrinkingly kind of uh <laughs> don't know how to put it really um <laughs> yeah, i mean his balls must have been like fucking acorns i mean doing that scene and he just, has described it as being like that hasn't he yeah just crawled um, right up inside his body i mean yeah well, it was cold well, as well it was cold yeah it was new zealand so. <laughs> and, <laughs> i mean in the behind the scenes he talked about how he hesitated yeah well so so badly like, because he didn't want to just let go. And he had to do that stunt multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> and then to get banged around, once you finally land on that ball, I mean, that ball didn't have a lot of give. Like, he just kind of no. got knocked off of it, but it didn't look real comfortable either. So it's... But that's like a real proper stunt, you know, that you, you're, you're trusting some stunt guys in a small wire that you're just not going to go splat, you know? So whether somebody can come along and do something similar, who knows? And even if they did, even if somebody in the future comes along and does something similar, I think most people will just say, oh, well, Tom did it first, didn't they? Mm -hmm. I do think that we're going to get in like 15 to 20 years, we're going to have a lot of people saying, oh, the golden years of Mission Impossible when Tom was doing all this stuff. Because I, I have a hard time believing that anybody's going to quite match the level that he is reaching right now. And you're right, too, about the going back to the stunt where he drops down from the helicopter. There's been an awful lot of banter back and forth between Bond fans and, and fans of Mission about stunts. And even I disagree with what Mission Impossible has thrown out there in their trailers saying it's the biggest stunt in cinema history where they show him motorcycling off the cliff and then parachuting down. I actually completely disagree with that because I would even argue that the helicopter stunt that he did in Fallout is bigger than that. Just because it mm -hmm. is so, he's just on a wire and he's literally free falling for many, many feet. But yeah. couple that with, you know, I immediately do think about the ski jump stunt in The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. Where, I mean, let's face it, this was the 70s. Safety standards were not where they are now. So it's like, I don't know. Well, the weather looks good. 
it's not too windy. Why don't you give it a shot? <laughs> you got one shot to do this. And if you fuck it up, you're dead. <laughs> you know, it's it's a whole different ball game. I would still maintain that that stunt is by far the biggest stunt in cinema history. They've got to say something. But was it performed by Roger Moore? Well, of course it was performed by Roger Moore because Roger Moore did all of his own stunts. Absolutely. I know, but we should. I felt for posterity, we should point that out on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. How dare you speak so ill, Roger Moore? <laughs> oh, I dare often. <laughs> I yeah, know you just, do. Yeah. Just, just wait till we get to Octopussy. It's going to be very contentious around the uh, undisclosed location. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> but ironically, not Moonraker. Yeah, <laughs> like, we're both on the same page with Moonraker. I think so. That's good. <laughs> Marty, I know you had some, uh, maybe not grievances, maybe that's not the right word, but you you had, uh, you wanted to talk about uh, the... Um I just, there was a, something I thought I would mention on your show. It seems that there's a, you're, you're giving me a small, a very small platform to stand on and I'm going to, I'm going to use it to the full extent, right? <laughs> but I'm going to put this in the category of things that Mission Impossible films do better than the James Bond series. Okay. Part one, right? <laughs> <laughs> right is that my, that's like a backdoor way to get out of the show again isn't it marty part one yes, I'm, trying, I'm trying to get here. <laughs> part one part 373 <laughs> once we've seen dead reckoning uh, one we'll have you on for part two of this and then once yep. we've seen part two <laughs> so my beef my beef is eon right forcing notable scottish actors like alan cumming robbie coltrane and Robert Carlyle to drop their Scottish brogue in order to, in order to play Russians. Mm. Now, and I don't, I don't appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> as much as I appreciate a good Russian accent, and Jason, you are the grand master of Russian accents. Having listened to the show, thank you. You are, uh, uh, you could almost pass for Russian at this stage, I think. <laughs> but um, yeah, so fine. I can understand why coming in and Coltrane to the point. But Carlisle could have easily been written as a little Scottish hard man, couldn't he? I think. Oh yeah. But it's possible that he didn't want to be jumped. Up, it can be a jumped up version of Begbie from Train Spotting, right? <laughs> and he kind of actually enjoyed the challenge of trying to do a Russian accent, a Russian accent. Well, and then but, you'd be waiting. Then you'd be waiting for him to like take a, a pint of, of beer and throw it over a balcony and hit somebody in the head and fatally wound them. <laughs> Imagine though, if he'd just been a little Scottish hard man in the world is not enough. That would have been fantastic. It would have been pretty you great. Know, just a spitting <laughs> Glaswegian hard man, you know, <laughs> threatening to to give you. A, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes. Threatening to headbutt you and stuff. You know, that would have I been great. I, I see no reason why they couldn't have done, gone that way with them. Well, I mean, even uh, Lucasfilm, you know, Lucasfilm, they were able to feature the distinctly Scottish character in their Star Wars show, Andor, played by actor Alex Ferns. You know Alex Ferns? Um, you may not know him, but he played um, a character called Sergeant Linus Mosk, and he's just full-on Scottish brogue. Yeah, he's the, this, oh, I can't remember the name of the, the agency, but you, you know the, you know the character I'm talking about in Andor. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's part of the, the FSB or whatever they're calling the security, the security team people. or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. so, I mean, they didn't ask him to drop the accent. You know, I mean, Lucasfilm didn't have the balls, firstly, to ask Alex Ferns to drop his accent. I mean, <laughs> imagine that meeting. You know, yeah, Alex, um, yeah, we've had this meet, we've had this um, conversation, Alex, and we were kind of really, really like you to just drop the kind of Scottish brogue a little bit because people can't understand you and we don't, we don't have to put it in uh, subtitles. <laughs> You're telling me what? You're telling me what? 
Okay, not you. I mean, so they didn't, they didn't ask him to do it, you know. Um, so with that in mind, I'm hoping that you know where I'm going with this in terms of Mission Impossible. Now, before I get into that, I want to kind of just, I will forgive Eon, all of their previous trespasses, right, for the mm-hmm. Scottish accent, if they cast Johnny Lee Miller as M in any of their new John, um, Bond films. That would be brilliant. That would be because amazing. Because of the family connection and stuff as well. You know? Yeah. So it makes sense. So I would forgive them if they did that, right? But just to get it back on track with Mission Impossible, Mission did it right when they cast Scottish actor Dugray Scott and Sean Ambrose in the second film. Yeah. And they could have easily made him Russian, couldn't they, if they wanted to? But yeah. they didn't. And instead, we were treated to the immense joy of hearing a Scottish man in full flow in a Hollywood action film starring Tom Cruise shouting, Put a sock in it! <laughs> it's the best. I love it's that moment, like, too. Put a sock in it. Um, just, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is in the, the category of um, things that Mission Impossible do. Better than the James Bond films, part one. <laughs> Thank you for that excellent segment. <laughs> so, um, and just one little final thing. So uh, as a message to Barbara and Michael, you may take away our voice in popular action films, but you can never take away our freedom. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I to get that in. <laughs> you know, along those lines, don't you think that they should have just let Mel Gibson use his regular Australian accent in Braveheart? I mean, talk about <laughs> cultural appropriation. Well, just- I was just going to say, um, obviously that was a line from the Scottish popular folk, Scottish folk hero, Mel Gibson, <laughs> whose who's image you see up and down the um, the, uh, the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. I mean, you go up, there's, there's, all, there's all the tourist shops and there's just all the pictures of Mel Gibson. <laughs> like, Wait a minute, you know, we appreciate you coming here and putting Scotland on the map, but you know, this is, this is now in perpetuity now, isn't it? It's like, what's going on? What the fuck? Thanks, Mel, but fuck off. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm really glad I didn't see that when I went to Edinburgh. <laughs> oh, it's there. Oh, my gosh. It's there. It's there. If you want Mel Gibson on a T-shirt, it's pretty easy to get. Five ninety-nine. Oh, I never want Mel Gibson <laughs> on a T-shirt for anything. <laughs> Just for the record. <laughs> it's more of it's. This is going way off track here, but it's more of kind of an annoying when you see. People that are born and bred in Scotland, right? They're from Scotland, Scottish parents, and they've got a picture of of Mel Gibson on <laughs> tattooed on their arm from Braveheart. He's like, oh, don't do that. <laughs> it's almost as bad as putting a tattoo of James Doohan on your arm, right? <laughs> I've seen him in, in the flesh, actually, once. He was, really? he was at a Star Trek convention in Edinburgh, and he'd just come out, and he was literally being swarmed by a bunch of guys dressed up as Klingons, all asking for his autograph. It was one of the best oh, I've ever seen. I thought, that's an image I'm never going to forget. I mean, <laughs> Canadian James Doohan. <laughs> In Scotland, being, being swarmed by Klingons. <laughs> Who, and, no uh, doubt, were speaking Klingon with uh, a Scottish brogue, which probably made it even more difficult to understand. <laughs> uh, knowing these guys, yeah, they would have been asking in Klingon as well, and expecting James to understand. <laughs> Those guys take it very seriously, don't they? Oh, they do. They do. I don't know if this is a point of contention between Jason and I or not, but uh, I personally don't really need or want to see Bond settling down, having kids, and I don't really need a lot of time spent on his private life. I would rather learn about Bond through his missions. Like, Bond for me is about 
like spy intrigue and beautiful locations, sexy people being sexy, and then some big action set pieces that are, well, <laughs> at least they used to be carefully crafted. Whereas Mission Impossible flirts with all this, but the distinction being that Ethan got married, then separated for the safety of Julia, and it's also a bit more chaste, Ethan being clearly a bit more into monogamy. And uh, my question is, and I'm going to throw this at Jason first, where do you sit with all this? I think you know perfectly well where I sit with all of this. I mean, I, I like a little bit of character in my movie. And if my biggest complaint about anything pre-Daniel Craig era was that there wasn't any real character development at all, even for the characters within the movie. And I can, I can, you don't necessarily have to have Bond remember something that happened to Sean Connery as if it were continuity to make me happy. But just in general... Most of the Bond villains prior to well, I'm going to say I'm going to go ahead and say all the Bond villains prior to the Daniel Craig movies were like you said focused on what was happening that day for that two and an hours and fifteen minutes and nobody gave a shit about anything there was I was never invested in the movies so after I stopped being I don't know twelve and actually was looking for something more in my movies than just bang bang shoot shoot. I was never getting that out of it. And mm -hmm. I got that instantly with Mission Impossible. Even the first one, which is, I know, I won't say it's the most Bond-like, but it's definitely the most spy movie-like in terms of it's kind of let's get from point A to point Z with a little bit of intrigue and a couple things blowing up kind of thing. But even De Palma's throwaway characters, I gave a shit that Emilio Estevez died. He's in it for three minutes, right? right? You, there, was, there was enough time spent getting to care about the character enough that you wanted to move on and oh he died he died so that benji could live and <laughs> well did he though i think that we uh we talked about that didn't we ben we did we we talked about what if they just like miraculously shows back up the, the, the potential that Emilio Estevich, the ultimate tieback. His face is all burned and scarred. He's got the whole Bond villain look going on. And he's just like, I am the author of all your pain, Ethan. And they were like, <laughs> yes! <laughs> well, I would be, yes! And Ben would be like, mother. <laughs> but yes, I think James Bond is what it is. And I think that there's always been a conscious effort on the Mission Impossible movies to be less that. Uh, and I, not to sound nationalist or anything, but James Bond is a British secret agent. Ethan Hunt mm -hmm. is an American secret agent. And Americans yeah. are always more concerned about what people think about them <laughs> than I think <laughs> British people are by our very nature, because we're all just a bunch of insecure assholes who think that we're the best things in the world, but secretly know that we're not. So you get more of an everyman approach with missions, because if you made another James Bond character out of Ethan Hunt, nobody would want to go see it. You just go watch James Bond. Yeah. Well, Ethan cares about his team, doesn't he? That's the thing that yeah. is he says all the time, doesn't want to let anyone down and he'll make a tough decision to save one person. And James Bond never did anything like that, really. I don't know. You could argue that he was somehow better when it was just the formula that Cubby did. And it was that style of film. And then you go, there you go. That's that's it. We're not trying to be fancy with any, any of the character development. But they're so different, aren't they? I mean, I don't mind that the fact that the Bond films have tried to humanize him a bit more and give him a bit more weight in terms of the way he's feeling about his relationship with Vesper and, and how that whole developed and his sort of mortality and becoming an old man all of a sudden from quantum assaults to skyfall um that would be harder than anybody really you suddenly you're in your prime one minute next minute 
gray hair. Do you know what I mean? You've lost a step. I feel what that. The it's, <laughs> it's not the years, it's the mileage. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's good to give characters stakes and relationships to have to contend with. And it seems like we're going to get that a bit more with Dead Reckoning as well, with Ilsa. The, 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 certainly the couple of shots in there and the, the, the hint at the, the fact that they've become a couple to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And you do wonder about whether she's going to make it through this next film and that will give it some stakes for sure, won't it? Yeah. If she dies in this one, there won't be a part two for Ben, unfortunately. So <laughs> it, might, it might just be you and me, Marty, talking about it. <laughs> I will still trudge on regardless, but I'll be very sad through the whole thing. Um, the voice will- of CIC will have to come down and talk you off that noose <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, I will say that I think watching the mission films mature as they have, like it has sort of opened my eyes a little bit to certain characteristics of Bond that I did like being fleshed out over time. You know, there's there's just certain bits, particularly in No Time to Die, that, that just are so not Bond that I'm just like, okay, well, you can still develop these these relationships and you can deepen Bond as a character and you can deepen the people around him as characters. But I don't, I just don't, I don't ever want to see Bond with a kid. It's just, it's just a thing for me. I just, I don't know. Marty, thoughts on that at yeah, all? Yeah, well, well, I kind of mentioned this briefly on our show. It was the scene with uh, his daughter. Um, mm-hmm. Chopping the apple. Where he's making, <laughs> yeah, he's cutting up the apple, like the gun barrel, like the mini gun barrel. And it just, it's a scene that you just think, I just never, ever wanted to see that. I never needed to see that. Yeah. Um, I can understand why they put that in there for the sake of the story, which is fine. And on one hand, I sort of think they were trying to push the formula and push the kind of what Bond was and and stretch it out a little bit and just see what worked, maybe what didn't work. But um, I just, yeah, it just didn't feel very Bondian somehow, does it? No. It's It's too real. It takes away from the fantasy. A fantasy for most parents is not, I mean, most parents will be, doing stuff like that for real. You don't want to see your fantasy character cutting up an apple peel for his daughter. It's too everyday. <laughs> too everyday, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I just think that it, there's just moments in that movie that were so, yeah, it just takes you out of the the fantasy of who Bond is. And I do think that you can still deepen his character in other ways without going that route, with sort of staying truer to who he is and what his nature is. And people always talk about going back to the novels and, and what have you. And and this might be maybe the, the strongest argument for that. You know, those are things that you'd never see Fleming's Bond. I don't think he would ever venture into that territory with, with Bond. And so I would prefer, I would much prefer them to build up. And I know that a lot of Bond fans don't like it when the Scooby-Doo gang is there. But I do think that the tertiary characters could have been built up much better. Or even just build up, you know, the Bond women and the and the villain more to strengthen you know some of those characters in the same way actually that that mission does because mission has quite frankly like we've been talking about for most of this hour that they're like oh well you did that let me we're going to show you how we do it better yeah well you know i i've said and i think numerous times on the podcast i think specter was the best ending to daniel craig's era yeah because he walked off in the sunset and you didn't know what happened after that point. And yeah. as much as I do like No Time to Die, it is certainly not my favorite James Bond movie or even my favorite Daniel Craig movie. Because it felt like we don't have anything else to run with. Danny, what do you need to come back and do a movie with? And Daniel Craig said, 
well, I want to make a real movie, not a James Bond movie. And that's what they tried to do. And that's why it's so disheartening to Bond fans, because it was extra. Yeah. It was yeah. it was it was wish fulfillment for Daniel Craig. I'll come back, but only if we do this, 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 and this. And Babs is like, Well, of course, because you're awesome. We'll do whatever you want. And we have no other way to go. So I guess you're driving the bus <laughs> on this one. Because when it came back out, and you'll remember, Ben, you're like, What do you think's gonna happen? James Bond's gonna die, and you're like, No <laughs> for like ten minutes. But at the end he dies because there was nowhere else to go. They ended it in Spectre. Hmm. Yeah. So I feel like No Time to Die is a movie that didn't need to be made. And that's one of the reasons why it doesn't resonate with most of the fans. James Bond is just because in order to make it happen, they had to depart the text significantly to get Daniel Craig back in. So, you know, if they'd made the whole premise of No Time to Die two movies back, it would have been a different film when he was still fully invested in it and ready to go. Yeah. I mean, if you'd had that kind of... um style of bond film yeah from the start of a a run and you developed it then yeah i can understand that would make sense but it doesn't make sense in the way that they've tried to do it but you know they'll figure it out they'll figure it out i hope yeah that's my (laughs) hope as well i mean what i feel like the bond franchise needs is its own version of tom cruise and christopher mcquarrie that perfect pairing of like-minded people who are extremely driven who are on the same page about everything and then just everybody else get out of the way and let them do their thing and i think that if (laughs) this is just my own thoughts here if if eon really want to succeed i kind of feel like barbara broccoli may need to get out of her own way and bring in some people who are passionate about putting on screen a Bond movie and has a very clear direction about where they want to go. Maybe they've got a couple partners in crime as far as how they want to do it and just let them make that movie. You know, some people that you can really trust. I mean, whether it's a Christopher Nolan, whether it's a Denny uh, Villeneuve or someone like that, I just I feel like that's what that's what Bond needs to to try and even come close to competing with, with where Mission Impossible is currently. What are your thoughts, gentlemen? on the appointment potentially of Christopher Nolan coming in at this stage? I am cautiously optimistic. I mean, there are things that I'm very weary of because I did not like Tenet at all. I thought it was a mess. But I also thought that the the ode to Honor Majesty's Secret Service that Nolan did in Inception was fantastic. And so I know that Nolan probably has a really good Bond movie in him, so long as it doesn't get overly convoluted the way that Christopher Nolan tends to do. And as long as he leaves time travel alone. <laughs> Jason thoughts. Well. <laughs> Well, the first thing I would say is awesome. Bring it. Even if it's one movie, I will love the shit out of that movie because Christopher Nolan can do no wrong for me. But you have to question, going back to your point, Ben, is he in for more than one movie? Is he going to do three? Because, you know, he didn't want to do the third uh, Dark Knight movie, but they brought him back into it. And then he said, "Okay, well, I'm going to make an ending. And we know that certain people don't like when their characters end. They should go on forever. (laughs) So are you looking at the same problem there? I think he would make a brilliant James Bond movie. I don't think it would be as thinky as his other movies, just because I think he knows, no offense, the target demographic isn't looking for thinky. They're looking for James Bond. So you're going to get more of a Batman movie than you're going to get an Interstellar or something like that. He knows how to make popcorn movies. We've seen that. He doesn't necessarily do them a lot, but he does know how. I don't know. I think he's got a passion for it. I've heard him talk about the James Bond things. But, you know, Steven Spielberg had a passion for James Bond movies. And since he didn't get to make one, we got Indiana Jones, right? Yeah. 
but I'd still love to see Steven Spielberg make a James Bond movie just to see what that looked like. Oh, yeah. Because I bet you that would be the most technically perfect James Bond movie you ever saw. We would get the most <laughs> magnificent one shot in the history yes. of Bond movies ever. Yes. That's it. And then you'd be like, okay, who's next? The one and done thing. I like the idea of that potentially if they use that as a model going forward, just to give different directors a chance to do something, put their own stamp on it, then have a different actor for each film and just do it that way. Because at least it gives everyone a fair crack at having a different style of James Bond film each time they come out. That's what I would like to see personally, but I don't want to see Henry, Henry Cavill playing James Bond. I, don't, I just don't think he's the man for the job, personally. But He's a great Napoleon solo, though. Mm, he is good. Yeah, I thought he probably could do it. Yeah, no, I'll be probably proved massively wrong if Cavill ever gets the role. He'll probably smash it and I'll be eating my words. I'll have to come back and eat humble pie. It's all right. They're going to give it to Haley Atwell anyway, so... Well, good <laughs> well I mean, if, if Argyle ever comes out, maybe we'll see the closest thing to, well... It's not going to be the closest thing to James Bond because he's got that ridiculous haircut in it. But it's got a release date now, Argyle. So I'm told. Is it next year? Yeah, it's uh, February. Yeah. 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 So who knows? Maybe we'll actually see that movie now. Maybe it's real. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I Cavill, his window closed quite a while ago, I think. I, I think anyone who still thinks that he has a fighting chance, I, I just don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy it for a second. Well, with that, we're nearing the end here. Um, I wanted to go around and, and see what everybody's final predictions are about the upcoming Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, if there's anything in particular you're thinking is going to happen based on what you've seen so far in the trailers and everything. Well, it's going to be a movie. It's going to make a lot of money. <laughs> there's going to be some really cool stunts. And we're going to get 118% more Haley Atwell, so I am on board. <laughs> That's it, huh? That's, That's it. That's all you got? <laughs> That's good. What? It's, going to be a, it's going to be a Mission Impossible movie. The end. <laughs> all right, well, fine. I'll jump in. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that we're going to get – I think Ilsa is going to – we're going to think she died. That's that's my thought. I think we're going to get – It's a fake out. I think we're going to get a fake out death of Ilsa. And I don't think we're actually going to see her all that much in Dead Reckoning Part 1. So you think uh, that she's going to get, she's going to pretend to be stabbed with a sword in Venice at night? I kind of do. Yeah. I kind of do. Yeah. yeah. I kind of think there's going to be some sort of thing where, yeah, they think she that she's dead. And then something miraculous is going to happen in Dead Reckoning Part 2. Do you think those uh, scenes of Tom running through the kind of, like, the, the kind of alleyways are him in Venice? And he'll just get there too late and he'll see um, Ilsa getting cut down in the sword play. And it'll be like that scene in Star Wars where he's yes. like, man, no. <laughs> it's going to be like that. Um, exactly. I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to piece it together in my head. I, just, I, I love the fact that the trailer really doesn't tell you much at all. It really doesn't give the game away, it, which is a proper trailer. That's how you do it. That's how you do a trailer. You don't just spunk all your best bits in the trailer and go there you go guys um enjoy the film when it comes oh sorry we showed you the best bits um never mind never mind but what what would say about dead reckoning and this is and i pulled this quote because i thought this was just absolutely central to tom and his whole idea about and this was actually this is um, Chris McQuarrie said this, right? He says, uh, Tom will say, this is what I want the audience to feel in a scene. And how would you br best bring that feeling to the screen? 
And I think that's that's them in a nutshell, really. It's all about the feeling. And they want you to feel exhilarated. They want you to feel like you're punching the air, rooting for the characters and just having a fun time in the cinema, which is, which is how I felt when I saw Fallout on my own, funnily enough, actually. I normally go and see a film with somebody, but I saw Fallout on my own and I remember just nodding my head to the scores, getting right into it and just just really, really enjoying it. And I came out wanting to share that experience with other people, but I couldn't because I was on my own. And I was like, <laughs> I, did, I turned to like a, somebody that was coming out of the cinema at the same time. At the end, I went, that was good, wasn't it? That was good. And they sort of looked at me and went, uh, all right, yeah, it was good, mate. Yeah, bye. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's a shared experience. And we want to um, we want to share these types of films with other people. They're there to be just enjoyed and not taken too seriously, right? So yeah. that that's not a prediction for, for reckoning in any way, but you, you know that they're going to be upping the ante and it's going to be super interesting because it's a two-part story, a deliberate two-part story. So it's going to be good because there'll be stuff that you don't understand. There'll be stuff that you don't know how it's going to play out and there'll be subterfuge. Subterfuge, am I saying that correctly? Jason, correct me here, please. Oh, no, our listener, Chris, is the person who does all the corrections. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're close, though, if, if not spot on. Is Chris the guy that gave the four stars? No, no. He uh, corrected our uh, pronunciation of, God, what was it, Jason? It was a French word. Bon I don't Mott. Remember. Bon Mott. Yes, because we were calling it Bon <laughs> Mott, and he's like, uh, it's Bon Mo. I'll have you bon know. <laughs> anyway, right? <laughs> so he's our corrections department. Well, it's good that you've got at least one person. Yeah. <laughs> and all comments are welcome. Come on, bring them. Bring your comments. Bring them. In fact, comment now. If you're listening to this just now, and this this part's not being edited out of the show, leave a comment. <laughs> leave a five-star review, you know? Um, but I think Dead Reckoning will just... Up the ante, it's going to be... Yeah, I can't wait to see it. Uh, one of the things I'm looking forward to, which we've not mentioned yet, um, is the the score from Scottish composer Lorne Balfe, which I yes. really enjoyed Fallout. I don't know why I enjoyed it so much, but I really, really enjoyed it, even though essentially it was just a remix of everything that's gone before. Um, I'm a big Schifrin fan um, of all his 60s stuff and all his 70s scores as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, but I think what Lorne Balfe did with the score was beautiful, and there's some... There's some lovely other sections as well that were from his mind specifically, not that were that didn't have a precedence before. But uh, I love the fact that Balfe's going to be involved with the next two films, and I just know that that's going to be something I'm going to really get a lot out of. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the fact that they, you know, that they're they're working towards emotions, like getting people to feel a specific way. You know, I want somebody to feel this way in the scene and feel this way in this scene. And I feel like Balf really helps with that. In particular, I, I think about in Fallout, the very last scene, when Ethan finally climbs up over the cliff and back onto the flat part of the rock, and he sees the sun... Hmm. And it's I think it's like a string section that's playing in Balf's score there. And it's just so perfectly emotional because everyone is everyone's exhausted. Everyone is at their at their emotional limit because they didn't know for those five seconds whether or not they were gonna live or die, and then for nothing to happen and and it's just silence. And then you get that music of the of the strings rising and everyone's just sort of we see Benji and Ilsa kind of crying into each other, you know, as as they realize that they're all alive and that they actually did it and they all just sort of put faith in each other to do the thing that they're each of each one of them was supposed to do. But yeah, Balf was such a huge part of that. That score in that section is so critical. Even the um part that you mentioned earlier too, where Ethan is being followed by Ilsa. 
that mm. little section of music too is really perfect there as well. Yeah. But that's what it comes down to, isn't it? It's like if you're not feeling it, then it's failed in some way as a piece of art. And Mission Impossible, I mean, the kind of Mission Impossible films and even the kind of um, the Marvel films to a degree as well, it's like they're not given enough credence as pieces of art. High art, low art, whatever you want to call it, it's artwork and it's designed to make you feel something. And I think if it does that, then it's done its job, hasn't it? And, yeah. and Tom and Macquarie, that's their thing. That's absolutely central to everything they do. They want it, everything to hit, whether it's via a stunt or a bit of music or whatever it may be. And they just know how to create that balance and the tone and just get it just right so the jokes land at the right bits. And then the serious bits work as a serious part where you're going, okay, yeah, they're not kidding around here. They're, they're being serious now. Yeah. And I like the balance. I like the balance that they've created. And it's it just really, it's exciting potentially for Dead Reckoning. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be fantastic. Hey, you know what No Time to Die made me feel? Angry. <laughs> you're still not over that yet. Goodness me. He never, years ago. he never will be. He never I'll will never, be. I never will be. I'll, I'll until, we get one that, until we get one that pisses him off more. We never will be. So dig in because it's going to be here a while, Marty. Yeah, you never know. No. I may, I may actually grow. And <laughs> who it's knows? True. You, you, you've made, you've made a couple of of growth reversals over time. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> I have made zero. <laughs> I think there's um there's um I can see out of the corner of my there's a, a rather large blonde um Scandinavian gentleman trying to get my attention. I think it might be time for me to leave soon. Yeah, he's standing there, he's got the tranquilizer gun and everything. He's he knows what I'm, he knows what I want. <laughs> yeah. Give me it give me it, big boy. Come on. Yeah, just a just a blindfold this time, Oleg. He doesn't need the hood. We're we're good. Just 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 a blindfold. <laughs> well, Marty, it has been fantastic to have you on here. I think we've spoken Indeed. all we all we can about uh, Mission Impossible and Bond and and everything in between. But it was excellent to have you on. I'm so glad you were willing to uh, you know get uh, knocked out and and blindfolded to come here to the undisclosed location. And well, uh, it's a long way to come, but you know it's worth it. So I could come in and meet you guys in the flesh. At the undisclosed location. I can hear the voice of the CIC in the background. I don't know what she's up to, but she's she's there somewhere. Um, <laughs> um, she's omnipresent. She's probably um, telling me to lighten up or something. <laughs> <laughs> she's not convinced that you're over that uh, four-star review. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's fine. He's, he's better now. He's better. He's got over it. <laughs> Kind of. Yeah, All so right. yeah, thanks a lot for, for uh, having me on. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, uh, we wish you uh, safe travels back to uh, Thunderballs HQ, and uh, I'm sure I will talk to you very soon. Cool. I better go. This, uh, the, the big uh, Scando guy is really trying to get my attention now. So. <laughs> Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, Marty. Bye, Marty. And there he goes. Well... I hope they didn't hurt him too much. I hope they don't rough him up too much on the uh, chopper flight home. You know what can you do? You know he's a, he sounds like a trooper. I think I think he'll be all right. Yeah, he's he's a pretty tough he, guy. He, he knows what he's getting into now. So you yeah, know, probably right. a little less resistance, few a few less bruises. <laughs> right, he'll be okay. Hey Ben, yeah, is that your phone? Is that your phone? Yeah, yeah, it is. Hang on. Oh, it's okay. it's Marty. Hang on. Let, let me get, let me get him here. Hang on. Hi, guys. Oh, hey. Hi. 
Yeah, just before I head back to Scotland and your team stick the hood back on. Yeah, just give me two seconds, guys. I won't be a minute. Just two secs. <laughs> yeah, it just occurred to me that after my rant about Scottish actors being asked by Eon to put their natural accents to one side in order to play Russians, I totally forgot to mention another painful indignity that the country of Scotland had to endure in the James Bond film Skyfall from 2012. Uh, uh, okay. So the scene is set... James Bond is heading back to Scotland with his boss to visit his childhood mansion, who he helps get killed, by the way. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine the producers with the director sitting around saying, All right, Sam, in the finale of the film, when Bond lands in Scotland, we'll meet a Scottish character who it turns out was his childhood mentor. Now, what actor could we get to play that role? I'm pretty sure Sean said he's taken a pass, so... Hmm. And then Sam says, hey, I know we could get English actor Albert Finney. Fucking bastards. They could have picked a Scottish actor, but no, we get Albert fucking Finney. <laughs> anyway, I just had to get that in before I head back. It's just two seconds, guys. Only a minute. It's two seconds. Wait a minute. You both do a brilliant job with this show, guys. I love this show so much. Uh, and Jason, just for the record, I'm already... Looking forward to part two of your review for Dead Reckoning Part Two in 2024. The road to reckoning will continue. <laughs> okay, they're desperately wanting to take off now, so hopefully speak to you both soon. Okay, I've got to go. Bye. All right. Bye, Marty. Bye. Bye. Well, <laughs> I guess he needed to get that off his chest. I mean, Appar- apparently so. The the Scottish pride runs deep in that one. <laughs> indeed, indeed. That was a. A very pressing matter. Well, I'm glad he got it off his chest, and uh, hopefully he can move on. But, I'm uh, actually I'm actually impressed that Oli and uh, Stieg back there didn't just yank him by the collar, throw the hood on, and throw him in the helicopter. So he must have been doing some sweet talking or something to him. Well, you know, <laughs> those, we, those guys we, us- they don't usually stand for a whole lot of guff. That's why we use big guys like that. That is true, but Marty's accent is quite smooth, and you know he's a he's a persuasive gentleman, <laughs> and I'm glad that he got that <laughs> off his chest. It seemed like a very pressing matter for him. So, well, you, you know, know what the real the funny thing is is he you know he mentioned that that Sean wasn't available, mm-hmm. and I remember when I watched Skyfall, I was thinking, are they fucking kidding? <laughs> this guy's not even Scottish. Why right. didn't they get the clear choice to do this? Right. I mean. <laughs> I mean, granted, Connery was what it's not in his eighties, very, very close at that point. I don't yeah. remember exactly, and I'm sure he was just spending the rest of his days counting all of his money. But surely <laughs> there was surely there was enough to get him back for a cameo in that part. I certainly think it would have been worth the money, but uh, but you know, you know, who know, who knows what Sean Connery thinks? Only Sean Connery knows. Indeed, indeed. But uh, great, Phil. I can't say enough good things about marty mckillop so if uh if you're looking for james bond photos behind the scenes stuff you should check out thunderballs.org it's a incredible photo archive that he uh started and it is incredibly well curated spanning all of the bond movies so yeah go check it out but yeah great guy really thankful that he was willing to spend time with us of all people uh right (laughs) i mean uh, 
you would think in, in, within the community there were probably some, uh, you know, higher end, perhaps uh, dare shall we say, uh, scholarly individuals <laughs> he might have wanted to hang his hat on uh, along with, but nope. Nope, hanging with us. But uh, hanging with us, the self-proposed Dante and Randall of spy movies. <laughs> That's right. Oh my indeed, goodness! Indeed. But uh, hey, if you uh, enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoyed uh, hearing Marty hanging out with us, uh, why don't you get in touch? Why don't you? If there's one thing we love, it's listener interaction. So please let us know on email at cicdeaddrop at gmail on Instagram at Central Intelligence Cinema, separated by underscores. Or on Twitter, at CIC SpyPod. And if you forget any of those things, it's at the bottom of the show description of this very episode. So please, let us know. Interact. Tell us what you thought. Drop us a line. And hey, you could even give us a glowing five-star review. For my <laughs> Trek fans out there, there are five stars! Five! <laughs> exactly. So, uh... Yes, we would welcome five-star reviews, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so that our show gets seen faster when people search for silly spy shit stuff like this. But uh, I think we should get out of here. What do you say? Uh, Agreed. Agreed. All right. Well, with that, I'm Ben. And I'm Jason. And the CIC will return with more missions, more martinis, and more mayhem.